And so I hope the retreat is something that supports um, your practice and supports you establishing focus, that the retreat structures and instructions really keep a sense of purpose and focus. Uh, this is often lost in in daily life with the many activities we do on different levels, looking after our bodies, doing our work, helping each other, uh, dealing with whatever life throws at us. Of course, this is, you know, in a way, this is the arena for awakening. All this stuff, stuff of the world is is in the arena, is on the menu for awakening. It's all part of the process. But establishing a focus for to deal with that, you know, get in shape. <laughs> get in shape means also get fit uh, and uh, uh, get sense of right view. So just uh, using the retreat, the sense of having to make an effort, I'm sure, to put aside other activities, to fence off part of your life from the flow, the ever-flooding ever phenomena that come rushing in through the door, through the emails and through the telephones and so forth. And just having to sustain that effort to filter, and then also the effort to, you know, maybe operate at different times. You know, getting up early, staying up later, um, sustaining through the day, um, limiting one's other activities, curtailing other activities. So all this is the shaping up, and it's good to know you can do that. Mm. And work with it and of course you know it's it's all up to you it's all offerings encouragement and companionship in doing that and certainly the teachings and also the companionship are very important supports to sustain that focus particularly of course companionship you can read a book but to be in the presence of other people practicing, even if that presence is more on a level of mind consciousness than actual physical contact. Because actually where we really live, fundamentally, this is important to get this focus, is we live in the realm of citta, heart, awareness, we can call this the um, the active aspect of consciousness. So consciousness is just like a, a channel through which sights, sounds, thoughts pass and it hits the citta, which sits in the middle of it, you could say. Simple diagram. <laughs> uh, and so that's the bit of the mind consciousness that gets activated. So citta is the heart of mind consciousness. It gets activated. And it's significant because that then steers where consciousness looks, where it turns itself. So consciousness is really rather passive. 
and jitter is the active aspect that turns it around towards this, towards that, and of course towards, most importantly, the phenomena of mental consciousness. We're searching, moves around, looking for ideas, memories, uh, attitudes, words, um, in order to seek its well-being, which is what we're always doing. We're trying to find a way out of suffering, uh, though we may not even really have it that clearly in our in our minds as to what we're doing. But generally, we're looking for more happiness, less unhappiness, more clarity, less confusion, more steadiness and reliability, rather than more chaos and upheaval. Also, the possibility of bringing forth what's good. So this is also in, in chitta. And the really significant uh, quality of chitta is it wishes. It wishes. It wishes to do good. What's that? That's not a sight or a sound, is it? That's not even a thought. It's not, even, it's not even a thought. I mean, it's not just picking up data from what's happening around you, you know, from sights and sounds. It's not just um, which is the most pleasant one, which is the most pleasant sight, sound, touch, taste. It's not just that. It's not just referring to what's coming in through sense consciousness or even or thought. A wish to do good. Where does that come from? You might phrase it another way. A wish to help, to serve. A wish to bring forth what's beautiful. Uh, an aspiration. Where does that come from? Yeah. It comes somewhere quite deep. That really... <laughs> You know, it's not there in the, in the realm of sense consciousness. Because it's not saying, I want to have the best taste or the best thought even. But I wish to bring forth. Uh, what do you say? Awakening, resolve, uh, compassion, uh, clarity, uh, kindness. Um, you know, you may have different um, words you put on that, but this urge, this urge to rise up. And that's, you know, that's the thing we need to return to and keep in mind. Now, you know, a lot of the time in this our time together, we're doing what we call meditation, calming, steadying, um, focusing on, uh, you know, breathing in and out, uh, qualities of mind. Uh, somebody mentioned the sound of silence the other day. You can do that. Some people use mantras, simple mantra. You can do many of these things. These are, these are just skills. But the important thing is these these practices are in a way enacting 
the wish to do good. They're not just like techniques, like, like you know, like they're, they're, they're carrying the wish to do good. Whether the good is to deepen, to understand, you know, they carry our aspiration. They're not just mechanical things to to succeed at or to be a good meditator in a technical way. You can have a very simple meditation practice. You know. Buddha, I mean, some of these great teachers just use the word Buddha. Breathing in Bud, breathing out Do. That's pretty simple. Nothing too fancy about that. But just within that, all their determination, all their discernment, all their integrity, being focused through that particular um, device. Mm. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not what you do, it's how you're doing it that counts, where you're coming from, what you're, what you're following through, you know. So this isn't realizing we can think, you know, can I meditate? How good am I at it? This and the other is to be understood, but don't start looking at it like that because you'll get lost in the details. Keep returning to your core aspiration because this is what got you here into this retreat, perhaps even to this very birth into your life and maybe as your life went on you forgot that because the details got so many and we're doing this and we're doing that and we what are we doing here you know just chopping the carrots sweeping the floor driving the car switching on this that. what is it all about what's the point of all this <laughs> so we return to well don't get lost in all that this is just the, the story. But who's the author? Where does it come from? And when we use a form such as this, refuges, precepts, uh, commitments, um, restraints, uh, uncluttering, clearing, focusing, then in a way we're doing this to clear away some of the surfaces life's bringing to us and going back to the inner core. We seek the good. We aspire. Other creatures, no other creature aspires. It's a particular kind of desire. No other creature aspires. So, as I was saying, death walks behind us, but the deathless walks in front of us. And we're catching up with it. <laughs> Getting closer to it. Catching up with it. It stands in front of us. And we move that way. 
through the tangle of doubts and regrets and busyness and that keep if you're keeping your aspiration vehicle then you keep keep focusing on what what's right in front of you you could say the possibility for highest realizations from which great strength resilience compassion clarity will blossom enlightenment factors and maybe you know even that's too complicated So part of our practice, I mean, one of the things is offered is a chance for uh, chanting, devotion. And again, we can, you don't like words seem a bit strange or, you know, but, <laughs> you know, why do I live with a Buddha sitting on my wall, looking over everything, reminding me? Why do monasteries full of Buddha images? It's not just furniture or, or you know, they're, they're, they're reminding, reminding, this is possible. You know, the Buddha is saying, this is possible, practice is possible, reminding you. And unclutter, clear away other things so you can get a focus on that. And so we chant, we offer. When you chant, you do devotion practice. Whatever chanting you do, or make offering flowers, incense, whatever you do, you chant a few words, no words. <laughs> That's details. The main things that sense of every day, you kind of there. Bring forth, rise up towards the good, the true, the beautiful, the Kalyana Dhamma. And how do you know it's good? Well, because you have a chitta heart that knows what good is. He knows what feels bright, what is uh, lovely in terms of heart, kalyana. And it begins so often with, well, generosity, that's beautiful, because it is. Uh, virtue, honesty, uh, harmlessness, these are beautiful. This is kalyana dhamma in the beginning and we practice that right in the beginning and the Dhamma is also called Kalyana in the middle which means to sustain and work with uh, the obstacles the difficulties, the challenges, the doubts the negativity the fear, the resentments the struggle because it's beautiful to work, clearing, working through patiently, steady, understanding. This is the noble resolve, the determination, resolution, determination. <laughs> you know, it's the fundamental quality which will bring these other faculties, such as mindfulness and, and wisdom. If there's no resolution, there's no cradle for these, there's no womb for these to arise in. It doesn't happen until you're prepared to sit with some dukkha, some suffering, and 
what is this? Challenge it, meet it, resist, you know, the mind's collapsing into doubt or despair or self-pity or resentment. You could do better than this. You can be patient. There can be compassion. There can be wisdom. You can see through the fallacies. And you can maintain that dignity and clarity of your resolve. And sometimes you fail and then you pick yourself up and start again. Uh, if you do that, it's going to, it's a simple results. If you do that, it can only get better. If you don't have resolution, it's not going to get any better. You know, and the resolution has to meet that which we're not so pleased about. is isn't easy. And there's where you get your strength and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so this is a different kind of beauty, Kalyana, different kind of Kalyana. And this is where you meet your Kalyana Mita. Kalyana Mita, the people who can be with you in adversity, who understand and know and, and give you support, listen in adversity, help you to remember your aspiration. You've got to do it. But it certainly helps as other people are doing it and remind you of that. We're brothers and sisters. In suffering and in the release from suffering, in the resolve and aspiration. And we we admire each other. Wow, you know, she's practicing with that kind of that situation. Well, wow, that's that's truly worthy. He's practicing with these particular problems and difficulties. That's truly worthy. She's maintained this for the last 15 years. That's truly worthy. I'm inspired. And so this is a Kalyanamitta. And it's there in the middle of the path. Help you move along. And beautiful in the end when you get those moments of seeing through something drops away. Oh, I was seeing something that didn't actually occur. <laughs> it wasn't in the present. I was just carrying something I didn't need to carry. You know, so ask yourself when you step back from some of your thoughts and powerful programs, automatic responses, do you need to keep being this? Where does it get you to? You know, you workaholic attitudes and conflict in comparing yourself with others comparing yourself with other people you're good enough you're not good enough they're better you're better we're the same does this take you anywhere useful <laughs> what do you get at the end of it just more of the same so why do you why do you need to keep doing that yeah, I, well, it, it, um, it helps me know where I am. Well, is that where you are? Are you just in that tangle? Do you want to know you're in a tangle? Or would you like to get out of it? You know, we keep holding on to these uh, obstructions because it gives us an, 
we know where we are. We're familiar. We're used to it. I'm used to worrying. For not worrying, I feel I feel strange. <laughs> but do you need to keep doing that in order to be here? Can't you be the awareness instead? And just and how does it feel that comparing yourself with others? You know, complaining about yourself, measuring yourself. How does that feel? Bad. And how does it feel in your body? Confused and tangled. Mm -hmm. And do you see any reason any to keep that going? It's just a habit, isn't it? What would it be like to not have that habit? Don't try to get rid of it, just ask yourself what it would be like to not have that habit. Be quiet, wouldn't it? Now why just that little piece of deep attention is there to remind you that actually you don't have that habit. You get occupied by it, you adopt it, you keep adopting it. But at this very moment, you can at least aspire and recognise the possibility of a free mind. What would it be like to not have that compulsion? So spacious, steady, still, quiet. There it is. That's what you've been looking for. That's what you've been looking for. That's what your aspiration's been for. And just, what do you need to do to return to that? Widen, relax a little, soften the focus, return. Let the habit be seen, known, felt, arise and pass, move through. Witnessing it, feeling it, sensing it, but not adopting it. So in this practice, there's a difference between accepting the presence of thoughts and worries and doubts and so forth, which is we have to acknowledge them, but you're not adopting them. You're not saying, this is me. You're saying, there is this presence of this. Yeah. It's not, I've got a lot of worry, I'm a worrying person. No, worry occurs, doesn't it? Insecurity occurs, doesn't it? So the wise feature, the wise faculty, one of the initiating faculties of the enlightenment factors is sati, and sati's purpose is to translate what is seen or experienced as me and myself into a phenomenon, a dhamma, a natural thing, just something that happens. Everybody gets it. It's not you. Everybody has one. There's nothing new. Worry is normal. Not very pleasant. Rises. So... Where's the personal drama in that? 
That's the role. One of the roles of mindfulness. This is a phenomenon. It's a dhamma. It's a naturally arising quality. It rises from confusion. Where does it come from? Wanting conditions to be straight. Wanting people to be something other than they are. Wanting my health to be different. Wanting my you know, wanting the conditions to be something other than what they are. <laughs> and what they are fundamentally is unstable, unsatisfactory, not leading to fulfillment. That's how they are. Can you own up to that? without feeling something wrong with you in particular. Because with sati, you're also acknowledging the power, the capacity of the jitta to, to witness phenomena, to sense phenomena, rather than to just be them. So it's a very significant shift from what's called upadana, where phenomena are gripped, and when they're gripped, held onto, they become sankharad formulated into me. The grip itself is a sankara, it's an activation, it's a trigger, it's an action that the jitta undertakes, it acts, it grips, and it forms personhood in that grip. Mindfulness does the opposite, it still holds, but it holds openly. You know, so instead of a compulsive grip, it's more like a caring space around what's occurring. When there's no grip, there's no identity. That's putting it very simply. A sense of identity, which is where the struggle, the conflict, the comparisons, and so forth arise. This is upadana. And you can sense when that occurs because things start getting stimulated. Sati bears something in mind, but it doesn't adopt it as myself. Um, therefore, there's a space through which the phenomena, thoughts, memories can pass through, and we recognize that, that spaciousness, that openness that allows that. This is your first enlightenment factor. And second, Dhamma Vijaya handling, handling, exploring these dhammas, these qualities. This is unskillful. This is the skillful. This arose from this place. This is triggered by that. When I give my attention to this particular set of data, I start worrying. When I give my attention to memories and thoughts, I start to get agitated. When I give... My attention to uh, uh, you know what my mind cooks up, what my mind kind of fabricates and cooks up, a self arises. When I give attention instead to awareness, noticing stability, the shape of my heart. then identity doesn't arise. 
the shape of your heart. Because then that's not focused on <laughs> on topics. It's focused on nature of heart. The chitta's true dhamma, true nature. Now, you know, you can take, these are just words, and you can take issue with these. This is what it says in the, in the Pali Canon, and this teacher says this, and put it this way, but this is kind of what you've got to work with, uh, the nature of language, and I sometimes put it in slightly different metaphors and poetic phrases, because I'm just using words to point to, say, well, you know, where are you? If you're not all these phenomena that are rising and passing, and you're not that compulsive identity, it's useful to have something that says there's a certain presence there which aspires, which wishes for the good. Uh, and that's beautiful. That's always beautiful. And, and we get lost in the karma, the habits and patterns. Yeah. When one begins to recognize this, then the enlightenment factor of energy comes up because you really want to, you know, manage this riddle how we can be so have such crazy stuff going on when there's an there's a quality that searches for the good. How is that? that I aspire to the good and yet what comes up is all kinds of ugly memories and difficult feelings and uncertainties. Yeah, I wish I aspire to the good. How is that? Well, investigate. And you're cleaning out old karma. And when you start washing the laundry, some dirty stuff comes up and it gets muddy. But you're washing the laundry. What do you expect? Yeah. <laughs> Get the right perspective. And this quality of realization and the energy that comes up with it gives rise to refreshment, ease, mind collects itself, and then we're able to survey things with equanimity. So this is how the enlightenment factors come into being. There's active ones, which is mindfulness, dhamma vijaya, exploration, energy, and the receptive ones we get results of, we feel refreshed, we feel vigorated, we feel calmed, the mind collects. And then there's a kind of fruition, which is we survey things with a sense of equanimity. Now oh, this is me, mine, it's just this. Cool. And this is this is our journey. And often, you know, the spiritual process is considered to be something like a almost like a pilgrimage. <laughs> Yeah, and pilgrimage, it's not really about going anywhere, it is. You know, you go to a holy place, but a holy place is sometimes just a mountain or a, so what, it's another piece of planet Earth. We call it holy because it gives us a sense of, you know, uh, a marker. But really, the, the journey is internal. You know, the body walks along or however it travels uh, through the landscape. But the journey naturally is an internal journey. We're recollecting your life. You're, you're not doing lots of other things right now. You're just walking or being present or making offerings or 
meditating, so you're not doing more stuff on that sensory level, just it's very contained. Mostly you're turning inwardly into the heart and turning it over. Yeah. And that's that's the real real journey. Yeah. So wherever you are, planet Earth, basically you're standing with Earth underneath you, sky above you. Wherever you are, that, that's a, your place is a, is a pilgrimage, you know. <laughs> uh, wherever you're living, you know, Brazil or Belgium or somewhere else, like, oh, it must be wonderful to be in Brazil or Belgium or Botswana or, you know, something like that. A wonderful, wonderful place. You think, yeah, to you it's not, it's just, you know, earth, town, sky, people, weather. <laughs> I can think, oh, it's an amazing, mystical place. You know, I remember when I was younger, we always think that Asia's mystical, mystical Asia, you know. <laughs> and yeah, there are lots of spiritual teachers in Asia where you go to Bangkok or something, it's not very mystical at all, or Delhi. It's just choked concrete jungle. <laughs> you can fantasize about places that you don't actually live in just like you can fantasize about other people oh it must be so wonderful being a buddhist monk free from duties it's, I don't know. <laughs> it's got duties and things that you don't particularly enjoy and things you do and people you you know fond of or feel a lot sense of oh it's a shame he's gone or she's gone or you know it's, it's life going on but it's focused it's focused and so you know in your life cultivate that focus go on the, be the pilgrimage journey through sorrow lamentation pain grief and despair <laughs> you're not alone i assure you this is the way and, and something has to be left behind. Business is not finished. There's all kinds of things you oh, Life is not very tidy. You know, sometimes things are not entirely tidied up. You know, just you know, just keep keep practicing. I remember I was on a pilgrimage around Mount Kailash, uh, um, two thousand four. And so Mount Kailash is a mountain in Tibet, for those of you who are not familiar with it. And it's, uh, it's an extraordinary mountain. It stands out from all the other mountains. It's completely different from all the other mountains around it. Uh, for example, it's pretty symmetrical. It's shaped rather like a stupa. It's very, almost, almost looks like, when you look at it a certain way, it almost looks like somebody's built it because it's so such a beautiful symmetrical shape with a white crest and it stands out from all the rest and it has a kind of there's a valleys around it most of the major rivers of the indian subcontinent four major rivers arise there in different one to the east one to the north one to the south one to the west so it's considered this is really you know significant point on the planet so anyway so it's considered a holy place by Buddhists, also by um, Hindu, by Jain. So you, you do the pilgrimage. The pilgrimage is basically to 
walk around it. It's about 35 kilometers to walk around it. And it's not a particularly difficult walk. You don't need any specialist equipment, you know, ice picks or anything. You just, it's a rugged path and there's a little bit of climbing, but nothing extraordinary. The extraordinary thing is there's very little oxygen. So it's only you get about less than half the oxygen that you get at sea level. So you see, you can't breathe <laughs> or you can breathe, but you don't get the full results of breathing. It's like you're only breathing half amount of air. So you're always out of breath and it's a struggle just to walk. It's a struggle. You can't walk fast. You can't because you haven't got enough breath. You haven't got enough oxygen. And after a while, what happens is it also affects your metabolism because your body is starved of oxygen. It's not completely starved, but it's highly reduced. So, you know, it's quite a... You walk three steps, you oh, it's enough, I've got to stop. And then you walk five steps, and I've got to stop. Tired out, you know. And because you don't sit down, you have to have a stick, because if you sit down, it takes so much effort to stand up that you've lost all the results of sitting down. So you have a, a stick and you just lean on the stick and then you walk along another 15, 20 paces and lean on the stick when you need a break. And you drink lots of water. And also it's difficult to eat because when you eat, you can't eat and breathe at the same time. And so it's actually more important to breathe than to eat. So, you, And it takes too much work to eat. So often you end up drinking soup or something like that because just to keep chomping, moving your jaws, it's too much effort. And sometimes people can't sleep either. What happens is when you go to, to sleep, you lie down, your body reduces its breath rate. Well, you're already, your breath rate's already reduced. So what happens is you come to a point when you stop breathing and the body, body mechanism panics and it wakes you up. That's the body's got a reflex. If you stop breathing, it kind of sends a trigger to your nervous system. You're not getting enough oxygen, it wakes you up. So you can have this sense when you go to sleep, your breath rate drops, but it's already very diminished, so your body then wakes you up. So you can't sleep, you can't eat, <laughs> you can't breathe. <laughs> and you think, what do you want to do that for? <laughs> And all around the mountain are these monasteries and uh, lots and lots of pilgrims. And so people are walking along and they're thinking mantras and there are places where you can bow because it takes you to a point of extremity, of life and death. You realise in this your life is hanging on one thread, which is the breath. And that breath, once you really sense that, you know, your life is only one breath long. If it stops, that's the end. And there's something, not just in your mind, but your body knows that, and your heart knows the precariousness of the situation. And when it's like that, all your worldly concerns disappear. You're not worrying about your garden, <laughs> or, or how many guests you're going to have to dinner tomorrow, or what somebody said to you three years ago that you didn't enjoy, all that goes. <laughs> You've got no time for that. The mind is just because it just got to keep going. So all this, all your stories about yourself stop. 
it's too much effort to keep it going. Um, so you can't feel bad about yourself because you can't get you can't get it together to concoct a complaint. <laughs> Whereas normally, when you've got a lot of oxygen, you can do complaining, worrying. <laughs> you, you can luxuriate in it. But when this extreme situation, you just can't you can't get together. So you just walk along quiet, mind just go. Maybe aspiration. Keep going. Keep going. As you walk along, it's a familiar track. Now then you see little piles of stones where other people have built cairns or stupas by placing rocks so you put your stone on top. And somebody else comes along, they put a stone on. They gradually get the the mountain of stones of people who have all passed that way and they pick up a rock and they put it there to, to signify you're not alone. I, somebody else has been this way too and also doing the same thing. And this is pilgrimage. There's a point in it uh, where there's a climb you have to do which is quite taxing because of this problem with oxygen. And the top of it is dedicated to the Bodhisattva uh, spirit of compassion, which is the ability to accept the vulnerability and the suffering of human beings without shaking. To accept it, be there in a blessing state, in in suffering. So they say, well, you know, to get there, in a way, you've got to go through some suffering so you really know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's not just an idea. And before before you get to this climb, there's a place where you, you um, give up your life. What this means, it's not, it doesn't mean you're going to kill yourself. It means you recollect your parents, your grandparents, your relatives, so forth, and you kind of take leave. Say, I was given this life by my parents. This was a gift. It was never mine. It was never mine in the first place. This body was given. I, I relinquish it. I let it go. I give it back. You know, thank you very much. I give it back. Uh, you know, and then you recollect with gratitude, and you make offerings of gratitude to friends, relatives, teachers, and say, I've been given this life. When it comes to an end, I want to give it back with a sense of gratitude. And what the idea is, you then take something, either if you've got hair, you cut some hair off and you leave it, or you take a personal belonging and you relinquish it. A sense of really relinquishment. And then the feeling is now you've, you've, you've died. So you let go of your world, and but you know the details, and it's just the aspiration is all that's left. And then you start walking, climbing up this uh, mountain pass. It's exceptionally freeing. It's really freeing. You just just let it all go, and what's left is the aspiration. That which dies, you've let it die. And it's just the aspiration. And then you just start walking. You feel like you're 
light as air. There's no internal dialogue. There's no could be, should be. There's no I'm not good enough. There's no how long does it take. You just you just walk. And when you need to breathe, you stop, lean on a stick. Take a few breaths and then keep going. You see a few other people are doing it. There's no competition. <laughs> you know, there's just compassion for all the other people who are struggling to get up to this top. When you get to the top, the top is thick with prayer flags. It's got these katars, which are white silk scarves, and they're just like all the rocks are smothered with these prayer flags, these katars that are used in Tibetan culture as a way of you make an offering. You meet your teacher, you make the offering, the silk scarf, and then the teacher, she or he, has a silk scarf, and they give it back to you, and it's a sense of blessing. So this top of this pass is completely covered with white silk. All the rocks are smothered with white silk where people made their offerings. And there are various, um, there's a huge pole or a mast stuck into a rock, which is maybe four or five metres tall, with streamers with prayer flags on it which is brightly coloured silks, gold and purple, red and white prayer flags with sacred words written on them. And they're festooned on these ropes that are coming down from the, the, um, the central mast to the ground. And they're blowing in the wind. So it's these bright, shining prayers and shining white silks. And you, you get there... <laughs> this must be some Deva Loka you've landed in. Because <laughs> you already died. And you're in this incredible place of where everything is saying blessing, 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 welcome, blessing, compassion, truth. Everything is saying that. Everything is saying welcome. You know, you're blessed, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, this is your your aspiration body has arrived. You are your aspiration body. You've you've left that that thing that memoried thing behind yeah. that repeated memory of well I'm this and I'm that and I'm never this and I've got to do that all that is gone and you're just the aspiration and then you make offerings and then you go back well you go forward but the back, going forward is a descent and the theme is as you descend you come back into your life. You pick up an identity, you pick up a sense of being something. But now it's been transformed by this passage, this bardo. You see it differently. This is just a vehicle for my aspiration. This body, this personality, is just a, a, a tool, something, a vehicle that I can while I'm on this planet, to do skillful deeds with, to understand, to um, you know, work with this person, rather than being it, it's now a vehicle or a tool to bring forth the good, the true, and the beautiful. This, this is a transformation, in, and our emotions, you know, are transmuted 
because there is certainly is a strong emotional quality to aspiration. And sometimes, you know, we kind of like emotions just a bit troublesome, arising, you know, getting annoyed, getting excited. Well, this is where all that emotional power is gathered and clarified and used as the heart's energy for realization. And it's vigorous and it's loving and it's strong. Uh, and so this is how all our emotional power of Jitta Sankara, instead of being scattered over, being pleased by that, annoyed by that, it's just scooped together, channeled and directed towards clarity, towards letting go, towards compassion. And then don't be deceived by appearances. You know, in some ways, something like that, it's just a few people walking around a mountain, so what? On the external level, what was all that about? And some of them, you know, don't look that fantastic, just kind of elderly people or people who are overweight or scruffy looking people. That's just what it looks like. Don't be deceived by that. Don't be deceived by your own appearance or your identity. Don't be deceived by it. Bring forth your aspirations, uh, your aspiration body. So you don't need to kind of question too much about which particular system or technique because these are just vehicles for the good, the true and the beautiful. And in fact, if you do get too fixated on particular meditation techniques, you think only that's the good and the true and the beautiful. No, your life can be the good, the true and the beautiful. Meditation is just a time to remember and nourish and clear that so you're in good shape. And then when that good shape, a steady, rounded, spacious, firm heart is established, you take it through to untangle the confusions that arise in the sense realm and in the memory realm, the realm of thought and intellect. So offer this for your reflection at this time and my good wishes and uh, to sustain your focus uh, through some of the difficult experiences that happen. This is extremely worthwhile um, and you won't regret it.